to Romans chapter number 7. So in Deuteronomy chapter number 34, and specifically in verse number 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he was buried in the valley, in a valley in the land of Moab, against Bethpur, and no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was an hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his nature force abated. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And over in chapter number 7 of the book of Romans, we'll read the first six verses and get into the text that we are looking at tonight. In Romans chapter number 7 and verse number 1, Paul starts out, and he starts out this verse in connection with verse number 16 of chapter number 6. Verse number 17 through verse number 23, it's insinuating or it's pointing to what Paul has said in chapter number 6 up to verse number 16. But if we take this text and we look at it, how Paul has written it, verse number 16 will lead us into verse number 1. It's the same thought process. And what Paul does in these first six verses is he's taking the same thought process that he's taken in chapter number 6, and he's forming another analogy to help us understand what he's trying to convey to us. So in Romans chapter number 7, verse number 1, it says, Know ye not, brethren... For I speak to them which know the law. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about something that you already know. I'm going to form another analogy. I'm going to try to explain this in a way that you can understand. How that, the, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead... She is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. So that she be no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law... By the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that the, that the being dead, wherein we were held, we should serve in the newness of spirit and not the oldness of the letter. And again, what Paul is doing here is he's continuing his thought from, from chapter number 6 into chapter number 7. After verse number 6 here, after this section of scripture that we just read... Paul is going to take all of what he's just said. 
and he's going to make it a he's going to make it practical. He's going to explain exactly what this means in the life of a person. As I was studying some stuff about chapter 7 this week, one of the things that I found out is that chapter 7 in the book of Romans is a chapter that for a long time there was a lot of debate on what it actually meant. Was it Paul before he was saved? Was it Paul after he was saved? Was it Paul making some hypothetical person and talking about how they may would act or react? There was a lot of debate on what was being said. But if we take chapter 7 in its context, we can pretty clearly see who and what it's talking about. What chapter 7 will end up explaining to us is the normative Christian life. Paul almost takes a, a time out, so to speak, and that may, I hate to use that word, and that probably isn't the correct way to, way to term it, but Paul almost takes a time out from chapter number 6 and chapter number 8, and in chapter number 7, he's explaining what everything's going to look like up to this point. He doesn't want to leave us thinking something is going to be an implication of what happens without explaining himself. And we saw that same thought process in the beginning of chapter number 6 and the end of chapter number 5. If you remember, in the end of chapter number 5, he said, Sin reigned unto death, even so grace, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. He talked about that grace coming in and covering everything, that there was no sin that was high enough, there was no depth of sin that was low enough, that it wasn't covered by grace. There was nothing that we did before we trusted Christ, and nothing that we could do after we trusted Christ that could overwhelm that grace of God. And when again, we use the analogy of, of the Hoover Dam, where nobody can withstand the power of the water coming through the Hoover Dam if it were to break. And what did Christ do on the cross? He split the veil in half. He split the, split the veil in two. And because he did that, because he said it is finished, he split the veil where the mercy and the grace of God was being withheld. You had to go into there to gain mercy and grace of God. But Christ split that open. And no man can sin enough or sin to the extent that that flood of the grace of God and that flood of the mercy of God cannot super overwhelm or completely overwhelm that person. So that's what Paul ended chapter 5 saying. He starts chapter number 6 and says, What shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is saying, if you understood what I just said to you, then logically you're going to think, well, if grace is covering everything, then I can do whatever I want. And in a sense, that is true, but Paul takes chapter number 6 and explains why even though that is true, it's not something that we're in bondage to like we were under bondage to it. You're not under bondage where you have to sin every single day. You're not under bondage where you cannot get from out from under it. You're no longer under the mastery of sin. We, again, we talked about the slavery of sin where we may go back into the fields of sin, but we know even in doing that we don't have to be there. And that's Paul, what Paul takes, chapter number 6. He explains the newness of life that we're going to experience, but he's also explaining that we're not under the bondage to the sin that we will commit and that we did commit. We're no longer under the bondage of it. We're free from that sin. What he does in chapter number 7 is in essence the same thing. He's, so he's told us what our justification looks like. 
that everything's completely covered. He's told us what our sanctification looks like, that God is taking care of our justification and he is taking care of our sanctification so that we can walk in newness of life. Having been baptized in Christ, we can walk in that newness of life. In chapter number 7, again, he's continuing that thought here, but what he's going to do from from verse number 7 throughout the rest of chapter number 7 is he's going to explain that even though we know that we're not under the bondage of sin, we're still going to sin. Even though we know we're not under that bondage, we're still going to do the things that we know that we're not under. And the reason that he takes the beginning part of chapter number 7 and uses a specific analogy that they would have understood is so that when he gets ready to say later on in chapter number 7, the stuff that I want to do, I don't do, and the stuff that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. The reason that he says those things is prefaced by these six verses in the beginning of the chapter. He's saying that even though I've told you that you're completely justified, God has completely worked out your justification, and God is completely working out your sanctification. He is completely making you like himself. And we will see that in chapter number 8. Paul shows us the promise that we will be made like Christ. But chapter number 7, again, he's taking that little parenthesis and he's saying... Even though I've said you're not under bondage and you're not, and even though I've said you're justified and you are, it's not always going to look like that from your point of view. Even the Apostle Paul said there's going to be times that you know better than what you're doing and you're going to do it anyway. And there's going to be times that you know you ought to be doing something and you're not going to do it. That is what the normal Christian life looks like. There is no alternative Christian life. There is no one, no matter what they may say and what they may do, who lives the Christian life that they even claim to live. We can look at people from the outside and we can say, well, they've arrived, they've made it, they're living like a good Christian. But even then, we don't know their heart. We can't see the intents of the heart that God sees. But the fact of the matter is, and we have to keep the lens of justification over this whole section to understand that when God looks at them, he's looking at Christ. He's looking at what Christ did, not what they're doing. That's the motivation, but also that is, that is the implication to their life. Because we still are carrying around the habits of a dead man, we will at times participate in those habits. And that's exactly why he's using this section of scripture here in chapter number 7. The reason that we looked at Moses is because the covenants that God had given, it went from, and we saw that in chapter number 5, if you remember, it goes from Adam until Moses. He says that, that those who from Adam to Moses did not sin in the similitude or in the same way that Adam sinned, but death still reigned. So we have death reigning from Adam to Moses. Moses brings the law, but what happened to Moses? Moses died. And in that same way, Paul is going to explain to us that it's not the death of the physical body that ends the law. It's not the death of the physical body. While those sins aren't accounted to that person anymore after they're dead because they can't sin, and sin again. But even though Moses died, the law didn't die with him. He brought the law, but the law didn't die with him. One of the other things that I want to mention real quickly, in chapter number 7, 
of the 77 times that the law is mentioned in the entire book of Romans, 23 of those times are in chapter number 7. 23 mentions of the law are going to be found in this one book. And that's roughly a third of the mentions of the law that we find here. The one thing that we need to keep in mind is that at times Paul is talking about the law and sometimes Paul is talking about that law. So we do need to make those kind of distinctions as we're reading down through it. And, and you'll see as we read down through it, he says in some places, he says that law. And then in some other places, he says the law. So we have the philosophy of the law and we have the particulars of the law. There, so there's two, two different spectrums that Paul's looking at in these sections, of, these sections of Scripture. The first thing Paul mentions in verse number 1 is the authority of the law. Then in verses 2 and 3, Paul is going to make an analogy about the law. And then in 4 through 6, Paul is going to show us the applications of, or I guess the implications, maybe a better word, of what he's saying. So, verse number 1, we see the authority of the law. In verse number 1, we see, Now know ye not, brethren... For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. So Paul, again, he's showing the principle of the law in this verse. He says that we know the law has dominion and how the law has dominion. So we, 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 he's talking to ones that know the law, the principle of the law. And he's saying to them... You understand how the law itself works. And he's going to talk about, again, here in the next couple of verses, an, an analogy of what he's going to try to convey. But the principle of the law in this scripture is that law has jurisdiction. It has domination. In a sense, the law has sovereignty. The law is the king. The law is the Lord over those who are in Adam. Up until that point, the law reigned. And we saw that in the chapter last week. It says that the law reigned and sin and death were the result. I'm, I'm excuse, excuse me, sin reigned, but it came through the law and death was the result. So we understand the domination of the law, but what happened? What did Paul tell us happened in the end of chapter number 5 and then in the, again in the end of chapter number 6? He says that the reign of sin was done. To those who were in Christ. That grace had came in and now grace reigns through our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So the, the benefits or the benefactories or whatever you, wherever, however way you want to term it. Of the reign of sin through the taskmaster of the law was death. But grace has come and we're no longer under the reign of the law. But we're under the reign of grace. I know I've mentioned in times past Pilgrim's Progress, where Paul <clears throat> is it Paul Bunyan, or is he the one with with uh, John Bunyan? I always get the one with the ox and the one with Pilgrim's Progress completely mixed up. But so we understand that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and in Pilgrim's Progress he talks about Mister Legality. Mister Legality is who they sent. Christian too, and they said he's going to tell you exactly what you need to do to get to the kingdom that you're looking for. 
He's going to tell you exactly how you need to do it. Well, he got to him, and he told him exactly what he needed to do to get to the kingdom of God. But as soon as he would tell him what to do, Mr. Legality had a rod that he would hit Christian over the head with, and Christian would fall. And then he would try to get up, and Mr. Legality would hit him again. And Christian makes a statement, how am I going to do what you've told me if you keep hitting me down? And he points him to the burden of sin on his back. He can't get up because of the burden of sin. So, and we understand this from the text that we've come up to this point, the law has no ability to help us up. Um, Larry Winkler, I think it was, is the one that said that the law is like an alarm clock. It can wake you up, but it can't get you up. And that's the case. It's, the law has no ability to get us out of where we're in. Because we're under its dominion. It is the taskmaster. It is the one that's standing there with the whip every time that we mess up when we are in Adam. So we see that the law is the Lord over us in Adam. That's what Paul said. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. So... Up until this point, and we understand the chapters before this, but if we were only taking this section, the, what Paul is conveying is that before Christ, the only way to get out from under the law was to die. That's the only way out. You die, you're not under the law anymore, but you're getting ready to have to face what he says in verse number 23 of chapter number 6. The wages of sin is death. So you're gaining the wages of what the law was whipping you in to do. So you're under that. There's no way out of that dominion. But, and he takes on an analogy, and he's going to use this analogy to explain what has happened. And I think we know what has happened because we've gone through six chapters so far of exactly what has happened. But Paul, again, he's, he's using this specific analogy to explain what he's getting ready to say in verses 7, 8, and 9. So we see that we are under the authority of the law while we're in Adam. Every descendant of Adam is, uh, has a nature of sin, and that nature of sin is under the authority of the law. There's no way out of it. Unless you die, there's no way out of it. But if you remember back in chapter number 5, something interesting has happened to us. Verse number 2, we started to look at the analogy of of the law. He says in verse number 2 and in verse number 3, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as she liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So Paul is using the analogy of a, of a husband and a wife. He's saying, by the, you don't even have to be a Jew to understand this. He said, by the, by the principle of the law, by the philosophy of the law, we understand that if you get married... That's your husband. Or if you get married, that's your wife. 
And if you go out and you go sleep with another man or you go sleep with another woman, you are committing adultery with your husband or with your wife. That's pretty much a universal understanding. I think everybody here, whether we grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, are Jew or Gentile, know the law or don't know the law, the principle stands that if you leave your husband or your wife to go with another man or woman, you are committing adultery. And that's, that's, the, that's the analogy that Paul is using. We can even see this taking place in Jesus' own ministry. If you remember, what did Jesus often call the Pharisees? He often called them adulterers and adulteresses. He said, you are living like you're living because of the stiffness of your heart, because of the hardness of your heart, the stiffness of your neck. He called them that. He called them a generation of vipers. Even John the Baptist would call them adulterers. And to us, it doesn't necessarily resonate what he's talking about without understanding the narrative of the text. John wasn't necessarily saying that all of those men and or women were out cheating on their spouses. Paul or John was pointing to a specific area where they were trying to cross over a boundary that had been set. What Paul was telling them by trying to tie their natural, their natural, their nature, by trying to tie their nature to religion, or to God, they were committing adultery on the law. They were trying to keep the law in order to get to God. But they were, in essence, they were trying to leave their nature to get to God in their nature. And then hopefully, I'm, hopefully I'm going to be able to convey this the way that Paul conveyed it. That's the same exact reason that we find Jesus in chapter number 3 of John tell Nicodemus... You must be born again. Jesus wasn't giving Nicodemus a command. He was giving him an implication of what would have to happen. He's saying you can't get in on any of this. He said, he tells him in chapter number three, he says, you can't even see, you can't understand the kingdom of God, much less get into the kingdom of God. You can't even understand the kingdom of God because you have not been born again. In essence, he's telling Nicodemus what Paul is telling us in chapter number 7. He's saying, right now, Nicodemus, you in your natural state are married to the law. You can't, you can't yoke up with God. You can't leave there and go yoke up with somebody else. You've broken that. You've, you're, you've already messed that up because of your nature. If you want to connect yourself to God, you are going to have to be born again. Because you cannot break what Paul's saying here. He said, if a, woman be, if a woman have a husband, she's bound to him by the law. He's telling Nicodemus, you are bound by the law to that person that you're married to. You're bound to them. And what do we automatically understand? And what Paul will get into, not to get ahead of myself, but when we are bound to a spouse... We have a habit, whether we like it or not sometimes, of fulfilling the desires of our spouse. I don't go home and fold laundry and wash dishes and clean the yard and mow. I don't do that stuff because I just want to do it. I do it because my wife has been nagging the fool out of me to get it done. 
she's in there. She can't hear me. But I do those things because it's the desires of my spouse. I, the, 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 what you see a lot of times in a married person is you see the fruit of that person's spouse being played out in their life. Some more than others. Some, and, and, and even, even if we take that analogy a step farther, if you look at somebody who is married and they never do anything their wife says, they are a miserable person. And Paul is, again, he's using this analogy for a reason. And we'll begin to understand this more as we continue down through this chapter. But the reason Paul is using this analogy of marriage is he's saying, not only were you committing adultery by trying to get away from the person that you were married to, but even in doing that, you're over here disobeying everything that that spouse has told you to do, and that's the reason you're living a miserable life. You're disobeying everything that spouse has told you to do because you can't do it. It's, it's, and that's, that's the ironic part of the law. The law is almost as if you are an invalid, every bone in your body is broken, all you can do is breathe, and the law is telling you, I want you to get up and I want you to wash the clothes and I want you to, to clean all the dishes, and you're not doing any of that, so the law starts to berate you and you live a miserable life. And what do we see with people who are outside of Christ? They are under the bondage of sin and they are living a miserable life. There may be joy in sin for a season, but overall, what have we talked about the past couple of weeks? We're about satisfaction. They're missing the satisfaction that you can find in Christ because they are bound, whether they like it or not, they're bound in the nature that they're in to the law and they cannot fulfill it. That's the analogy that Paul's conveying to us. He says in verse number 2 specifically, we've kind of looked at the adulterous part of it in verse number 2. He said that he's bound by the law as long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. And then again in verse number 3, if she tries to leave while he's still alive, she's an adulteress. But if her husband be dead... She is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And this is the crux of what the issue that Romans 7 has caused with so many people. One commentator I was reading after, he said that Romans chapter number 7 was the weird uncle of the family in Romans. If every chapter was a person in a family, chapter number 7 is the weird uncle that nobody really talks to. They just kind of, they know he's there, but they don't really talk to him because what he says doesn't make sense to them. But if we will take chapter 7 at its word, if we will listen to what Paul's trying to say to us from Romans chapter number 7, the weird uncle makes a whole lot more sense than any of us realize. He says, again, he says, if the husband be dead, she is no longer under that law. She's free. She can do whatever she wants. It's not an adultery. It's nothing. She's free from that person. But the husband has to die. 
And I don't want to I don't want us to make a mistake and understand and misunderstand what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying that the law has died. And again, as we read through chapter number seven, we will see that the law is still around. But it's around in a different way for those who have died. If we remember looking back at chapter number five, Paul says that we are to reckon ourselves dead because we are. If we have put our trust in Christ, if we have looked at our surroundings and said, I cannot do what this spouse is requiring of me. If I do everything this spouse requires of me, I can go to heaven, but I cannot do any of it. I am completely unable to do what it's commanding me to do. We look at that, we see the bondage of sin that we're under, and we realize the gospel. Not that we have to do anything, but simply that we look at Christ and see that he has done it all. He fulfilled every single command of that spouse. Every single thing that we could not do that the law was commanding us to do in order to be in a right relationship with God, Christ fulfilled it all. He died and was resurrected. And, we're, and not to get ahead of myself, we're going to get to that here in verse number 4 and 5. But what we need to understand is in order us for us to be outside from the bondage Outside from the lordship of the law in our life, we have to die. That's the only way out. But what did Paul say in chapter number 5? He said that we're dead. He said that we have died in Christ and have been resurrected to newness of life. Our, Our old man, our old nature has been put to death in Christ. And that's what we're going to start to see in the application side of this. So Paul explains the analogy of a husband and a wife, how death is the only way out. You're not, you're, if you try and get out otherwise, you're in adultery. Death is the only way out. So we can see the application of this union that's about to happen. In verses number 4 through verse number 6, Paul says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. So there's our out. We have become dead to the law. Not the law became dead to us. Don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. The law is still in place. The law is still there. The law initially is not a bad thing. The bad news is we can't fulfill the demands of the law. The good news is the commands of the law were fulfilled for us. Verse number four, we have become dead. So we're dead. We're no longer under the lordship. We're no longer married to the law. We're dead. By the body of Christ. If we have trusted Christ, we've been put into the body of Christ. So when Christ died, we died. And when Christ was resurrected, we were resurrected to walk in newness of life. He said that we have 
been made dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. Paul isn't saying, all right, you're dead to the law. You're a widow, a widower. You can do whatever you want. You ain't under the bondage of nobody now. That's not what Paul's saying. He's explained to us that we're only dead because of our union with Christ. By default, we have died in Christ and been resurrected in Christ only so that we can be in Christ. He says that this didn't happen, that you should be... He said all this was happened, that you should be married to another, even to him who raised from the dead. Who was that? We know it was Christ. That we should bring forth fruit unto God. Again, taking that analogy of a marriage that Paul has used, we could not bring forth fruit to that marriage. We could not fulfill the requests and the demands of the law. We were unable to do that. And even if we ever started to feel like we got our foot on the ground and started to check off one of those things, the law would beat the pencil out of our hand. But we have been made dead raised from the dead why that we should bring forth fruit unto God this new marriage is completely tied into what Paul is saying in verse number 6 this newness of life is going to bear fruit but the fruits aren't a command they're a, they're a production we're not, we're not, we are no longer trying to fulfill the demands of a law, of the law. We're no longer trying to check off to make sure we've got all the rules in the right order, in the right place. We're no longer there. Instead of requiring rules, we're producing fruit. That fruit that we will produce is the continued strengthening in the faith of Christ. Paul tells the disciples in John chapter number 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. What, what Jesus was explaining to them, he said, You're looking for a kingdom, I am that kingdom. He said, you're looking for a way into it. I am the way into it. You're looking for the life, the kingdom life. You're looking for that, that wonderful life, that wonderful image that you have in your head. Jesus says, I am that life. He goes on to say, I not only came to bring you life, but to bring it to you more abundantly. It's not a physical life. It's a kingdom life that we live in the person of Christ. That abundant life is a spiritual abundance. We're bringing forth fruit unto God because of this new union. So that's the application that we see in verse number 4 and verse number 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, 
did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. This goes back to verse number 23. The wages of sin is death. The fruit of sin is death. And that's what we were doing. He's saying, when you were in the flesh, when, and, and he's not talking about this flesh that we have. He's saying, when you were a natural man, when you were in Adam, when you were not part of Christ, he mentions the motions of sin, the passions of sin. You are under the reign of sin, which were by the law. So all that was happening because of that connection with the law. That our members did work and bring forth fruit unto death. So what was coming forth from all that was we were getting beat to death by the law. And eventually we were going to get beat to death by the law. In our scripture reading this morning, what did Solomon say? He said, whenever I did all all of this stuff, I did all of this great stuff, I realized that it stressed me out and it was worthless. And that's the fruit of that, that union with the law. It's worthless. Real quickly, not to get off track, but part of Paul's call is he's calling them to understand their union with Christ. But that is something that we have got to understand ourselves, especially now that we are in Christ. We cannot, we absolutely cannot go back and try and flirt with the law again. We have been made dead. We are compl- that, that relationship has been absolved. Our new relationship is enough. Christ is enough. That is a marriage where there is full satisfaction. There's nothing missing in that marriage. Christ is enough. It's the perfect marriage. It is the perfect relationship. So why in the world would we leave that to go flirt with the hag that we were under before? There's no point. But that's what we do. That's what we have the tendency, even as people who have trusted Christ to do, is to go back and flirt with those regulations of the law to try and get in better standing with our new husband. We think, well, if I do this, and if I, if I kind of am I flirting over here with all these things my old husband used to like, then my new husband will accept me more and like me better. But that's not the case. It's in no way, shape, or form the case. There is no part of us that should ever be pointing back to legal rules and a law that had us bound before. Again, I'm not saying that the law in and of itself is a bad thing. It's a good thing for us not to go out and murder people. It's a good thing for us not to commit adultery. It's a good thing not to lie. I'm not saying that the law is a bad thing in and of itself. But because of our nature, we could never satisfy it. That's the problem. And the fruit of that problem was going to be death. But in verse number 6, Paul ends the application of this section of Scripture. He says, but now we are delivered from the law. That being dead, wherein 
we were withheld that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul's basically just repeating what I just said. Paul is saying, or I'm repeating what Paul just said. He said, you've been delivered from that. You've been taken away from that. From which he uses the word withheld. You were were held on to. You couldn't get out of it. But you have been delivered from that bondage. Paul, having used that that analogy of a master in the beginning of chapter number 6. And the analogy of the military and toward the end of chapter number 6. Paul uses this marriage of analogy to wrap everything up. To make it abundantly clear to us. That we have been separated from that old life. Paul will later on in this chapter, in the next few verses, he will say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What Paul is explaining to us here is that we're not married to that old person. But we're still carrying around that dead person with us. We're still carrying around the flesh, the fruit of our nature. And Paul understanding all of this, Paul conveying all of this to the Romans, he's saying, you will carry this dead person around with you. Until you are delivered. That's why there's a chapter number 8. Chapter number 8 is the deliverance. But we've got to understand. That we're no longer. In a relationship. That is bearing requirements. Of the law. We can't. If we want. To be under the law again then you need to somehow kill your new nature or you need to somehow kill your new husband. That's your choices. We know the law can't die because we've seen that. And I've got news. Your new husband isn't going anywhere either. And if your new husband is the only way that you got out of and delivered from that first relationship... Pray tell who is going to get you out of this one. But that's the point. There there is no one who has ever seen and been a part of this new relationship. There is no one that has ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good. There is no one who has ever been satisfied by this new relationship that is going to ever want out of it. And the blessing of that is we're not getting out of it we can't get out of it but as we move on through this text as we move on through this chapter as we see what God is saying to us in chapter number 7 and chapter number 8 9, 10, 11, 12 through the end of the book Paul has made it abundantly clear to us when God looks at you he does not see your old relationship. He does not see your old passions. 
He does not see your old failures. He does not see the scars that your old spouse has placed upon you. God does not see the flaws that have been beat upon you by your previous spouse. Paul, God does not see the shortcomings where you are not able to fulfill the commands of that old spouse. All God sees is he sees your new federal head. When God looks at you, and I know this may be taken a little bit too far, but when God looks at us, he sees Christ. When I, when, when I get a letter for me and my wife, it'll say Mr. and Mrs. Jeffrey S. Perry Jr. That's how legally we are seen. We are seen as Mr. and Mrs. Jeffrey S. Perry Jr. And when God looks at us, he sees Mr. and Mrs. Jesus Christ. We can't mess that up. And if we see that, there should be no desire to ever to go under and try and be Mr. and Mrs. Lord Wall ever again. That's what Paul is conveying. That's what Paul's, the gist, and this, this basically to, to round out everything. Paul, again, he's just making it abundantly clear. He doesn't want us to go into chapter 7 and see that we are going to screw up in sin, that we're going to fail, that we're going to fall, that we're going to be trapped with this dead body for the rest of our life. He doesn't want us to go into chapter number 7 not completely understanding who we are now. We may carry that baggage of that old relationship with us the rest of our life, but there's no sense in going through it and reminiscing. There's no sense in dragging it out every time we have a pity party and saying, well, I failed here and I failed there and I messed up here and I messed up there. That baggage can be put away because we have a new relationship in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you again for the ability to be here. Thank you for the ability to gather around your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have made 